Good evening. And welcome to our weekly meditation service. Tonight is a very special celebration where we're going to honor our patrons, the great patronage of those who have helped to create and support this community over the last 23 years. We will also be looking at uh, a particular question and I'm going to try to keep the talk a little bit shorter tonight because we have that ceremony to observe. But the question uh, from one of our readers, actually it was more than one of our readers, we've had this question in, in various different forms over the years, but essentially it is, Dear Sensei, do you, do you or do Buddhists believe in tithing? So the reading today is from the Anguttara Nikaya, it's one of the sutras where the sayings of the Buddha are recorded. And these are the words attributed to the Buddha Shakyamuni. When a disciple awakens the virtue of one's generosity, the unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion will be overcome leading to rapture and calmness of the body and mind, facilitating the development of clarity. So, as I mentioned, this question gets asked occasionally from time to time. And it's a subject that a lot of folks don't really teach much about. I try to at least talk about it at least once or twice a year. But it's a subject that people are somewhat reticent to communicate. And I'll kind of give you my own opinion as to why that is. But here's something that I want you to understand. When the Buddha Shakyamuni was laying out his approaches, his techniques, his spiritual technology to help folks have the exact same experience of awakening that he did, and then express it uniquely in their lives, he put together some various teachings, and various Buddhist communities have put these systems together. We have our own, the Four Directions system of mindfulness. So all Buddhists have done this to try to meet the needs of their communities and their time and place. A collection of those are called the Paramitas or the Paramitas. These are the practices that the Buddha outlined specifically for us to enjoin. And if we do so, these will lead us to having our own experience of the oneness of all life. And furthermore, will allow us to live out of that realization. Now they were in order. And Buddhists tend to be a bit, if you haven't noticed it before, we're a bit orderly and structured. <laughs> and the Buddha had an order for these practices. And these were practices that, as he said, or as he is said to have said, these are the things that basically um, uproot greed, hatred, and delusion. These are the practices, the, this is the particular practice, is the practice that leads to the path of clarity. The number one practice, the number one practice of Shakyamuni was not 
meditation. It was not mindfulness. It was not even ethics. It was dana. Dana. Dana is a Pali term which can be translated as generosity or more specifically the generosity of giving. Number one, ahead of all the others. That should surprise you because you don't see many magazines devoted to the practice of dana. Lots of meditation. Oh, good Lord. Meditation is ubiquitous, and along with various understandings of what mindfulness is. But the practice of generous giving, I haven't seen one lately. Have you? Now, why is that, do you think? Let me go further. Because the Buddha was not unclear about his meaning. In fact, it would be difficult to understate or overstate the centrality of generosity and giving in the foundation of his teachings. And yet, people tend to gloss over that. And I think there's a reason why. He would further say, in other places, that the way of the Bodhisattva, the being who is awakened and realizes that his awakening, her awakening, is interdependent with the awakening of all beings, that the number one way that you would see this bodhisattva acting was dana. Now dana had two particular special meanings to the Buddha. Number one, economic support of the ordained. Economic support of the ordained. Now, lots of people will go into dana and talk about generosity in some, you know, larger way of, you know, more general way of, well, you know, to be a, a good heart, to, to do this, to do that. But honestly, the Buddha was very practical. He believed there were two supreme ways of giving generously, two primary ways to practice the dana, and it depended on the path that you had chosen. The role of the lady was to practice dana and make sure that the ordained were cared for. Furthermore, that centers or temples were established, centers of learning and study. And this is actually how it played out. The lady saw their primary role as supporting those who had chosen, who had been called to teach, because they knew the other and even greater gift of generosity was those who would devote their lives, study and train and service to the teaching and the preaching of the Dharma of liberation. That's it. That's it. It's, it's, it's not some watered-down general idea. It was very specific. And further, part of the reason that lay people were to do this 
is because the Buddha knew that if there were not a special group that had felt called and had taken the choice to live this life of service and preserve these teachings, they would die out. If it was only laity who were doing these things, it would die out. And the fact of the matter is, throughout the 3,000 year history of Buddhism, where movements or practices have been enjoined primarily by the laity, and the establishment of centers and temples and the orders of the ordained were not upheld, they disappeared from those cultures. So he was right. Now he did say too that there are some wonderful things that come and obviously to extol giving without discrimination to the poor and needy as well. But the ideology and the practice of Shakyamuni was very clear. And that was the generosity of the laity to maintain the welfare of the ordained. Now that's going to strike some people and I think it's going to strike them for a reason. There are three types of dana in this sense that you were enjoined to practice. Now remember, this is the Buddha's number one practice. Before meditation, before ethics, before mindfulness, he suggested this practice. So unless you think he was a fool, there must be something worthy of our attention. First, he said, one must practice dana by sharing one's wealth and property for the benefit of the ordained. Japanese, this is called zesa, or the gift of material goods. Yeah? To share one's wealth and property for the benefit of the ordained. That was the number one way you could practice dana. Number two, to assure that there were ordained who would share the Buddha's teachings in detail and length. What that meant essentially was that there would be an order that would continue to vigorously devote this as their focus for their lives. And finally, that this would result in the gift of freedom from fear. The ordained going out into the world to share the courage of true wisdom so that the difficulties of life could be met with calm and a peaceful heart. Now, what were the practical rewards of this for those who were giving? You know, the Buddha mentioned these too. He said the rewards for dana is that one will become dear in appealing to the people at large. One would be admired by good people. One's good name would be spread. And one does not stray from the rightful duties of the household which he considered number one being the support of the Sangha, the ordained. And with the breakup of the body at death, one appears, one reappears in a good destination in the heavenly worlds. Words of Shakyamuni. So what I love about this is that it's very practical. There's nothing opaque about this teaching. Now why is it not the case? Why do most Dharma centers struggle? Why have not great infrastructures been created in this country for the practice of the Dharma? That's a good question. Obviously, it's ignoring Dharma. 
People often talk about our culture and they you know, very rapidly go into the evils of greed. And they, I believe mistakenly, will align that at times with capitalism. Is that really it? Or is our society so bent on consuming that the idea of giving now I will say this that Americans as a whole are pretty generous in fact studies have, and statistics have shown that we're probably the most generous country on the planet we give more during crisis than anybody else on earth so Americans do have a good spirit of generosity. But American Buddhists or American followers of the way of mindful living seem to have forgotten. Now, not all. In fact, tonight I praise those who have done so for our community. But by and large, the majority of folks don't see that as their responsibility. They, I guarantee you, if you went to a lot of folks and asked them, what's the number one practice the Buddha admonished? Dana and making sure the ordained and the centers were maintained would not be number one. Now, I know that in saying this, as someone who's devoted his life who went to school, who received a master's degree, who received a doctorate degree, who spent over $100,000 in education, who knew going into this, I was not going into this to become wealthy. I went into this and devoted my entire life to serving for that reason only. And yet, for some reason, it persists that somehow that's going to magically happen on its own. I have had to be a worker priest. I have never been able to rely just on the generosity of Donna. That I have never been able to do. Why? And again, I, I say this knowing that some will say, how self-serving. How dare you? How dare you? For some reason, there's the idea that those who have felt called to serve and have chosen to do so, which is not a big group, that, you know, fend for yourself. But by God, be there when I need you. In the middle of the night, when your loved one has been in an accident, be there. When someone you love has been lost, be there. When the hours of your own psyche turn dark, be there. When you want to celebrate the union of life, be there. But very little consideration is given by many to that reality. It ought not to be so. Any of you that are watching, any of you that are listening, 
if you have benefited one whit from the practice of mindfulness and our teachings that we have presented and our ministry that we have served, one whit. And beyond that, in general, if you've benefited from the way of mindful living, whatever place it has come from, sacred or secular, guess what? Without this practice, you wouldn't know it. Without the ordained, the teachers, those who devoted their life to serving from one generation to another, these teachings would not exist. You wouldn't be able to go to your newsstand and see the word mindfulness splattered all over every cover. Wouldn't be there. It would not exist. Even our most beneficial form of psychotherapy in the West, cognitive behavioral science, would not exist. The forerunners of that particular approach began with William James when he brought a Buddhist ordained teacher to speak before the gathering at Harvard and he said this is the future of psychotherapy and had not those who had composed the Western version not been inspired by these practices and liberally borrowed from them sometimes giving them no honor it would not exist. Remember that. It would not exist. Gone. Because there have been great forces throughout the centuries that have committed great acts of evil to destroy the ordained. When the Muslim invaders went into India, they practically wiped it out. And you know what the first thing they did? And every time they went in, was destroyed the Buddhist temples killed the teachers. When the Chinese Cultural Revolution in 1959 occurred, guess what the first thing was that they did? They went to the temples and they murdered the clergy. Why? Because they knew. So, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> So what I would like you to do, and I say this to you compassionately, think about this. Think about this. Don't turn away from my words. Let it penetrate deeply. Realize that your support of the Sangha, your support particularly of the ordained, and in this case, specifically, those of us in the Order of the Dragonfly. Those who helped establish this beautiful temple. Just realize none of this would be possible without that support. We need that support. I hold up my begging bowl. Where's my begging bowl? Here, I use this bowl as my begging bowl. You can't do it without your support. 
We struggle mightily without your support. So please, consider not my words, but the words of Shakyamuni, that this is the number one practice of someone who is living the mindful life, who is following the path of the Dharma, Dana, and specifically Dana giving to those who have been called and who have devoted their lives to serving. Tonight is a special night where I want to hold up all of those who have practiced Donna. And I originally thought about putting a list together of all those who have to practice this number one practice of Buddhism and, and mindfulness. And I wanted to say their words, but when I, I spoke to a couple of them and said that, they asked, no, no, please, don't, don't say, don't do that. They didn't want me to publish or say their names. You know. Isn't that humble? So I first want to say my heartfelt thank you and gratitude for all those who have continued to support our work, our ministry, and our life. And I want to especially remember a few folks tonight. I'm going to just say something briefly about each of them. So our great patrons, the first person that I want to talk about is Christine Yito Lauder. Christine Yito Lauder is my sister. She left this mortal plane back in 2004. She was a wonderful, generous, joyful spirit who had devoted her life to serving others. She was a school teacher and she worked in private schools, and then she created two private academies, one called the Cherry House, which was devoted to helping children that had kind of fallen through the cracks of the public system. And she did this her whole professional life. Unfortunately, her life was struck down at a very early age. But she was a dear, dear sibling, my dear sibling, and also my best friend. There are things about our life together growing up that only she and I share. And I, I miss her. I miss the sound of her laughter. But she lives as all of the, all of the ones I'm going to say. They live in my heart and mind, continuously, daily. So to Christine, I say thank you. She is the patron of the Order of the Dragonfly and the inspiration for our service. The next person I want to talk about is John Titan Stoltz. I'm looking at a drawing I had commissioned of him. John was my father, and it is his patronage, his belief in what we were doing, 
that allowed us to do so much of what we have done. In fact, this building would not exist without his patronage. That he knew that helping me and helping the order and helping the Sangha and doing so every life that was touched by what we have done, every life that has been liberated to a better existence, he was participating in that. And so, my beloved father, we wouldn't be here without you. Thank you. The next person I'm going to talk about is uh, a person who, without whom I may not be here. <laughs> uh, and that is K. Yuto Shaw. My Aunt K. was truly my first real Buddhist teacher. She had married my uncle when he was stationed in Hawaii. And they moved here to Pennsylvania. And, you know, it was very difficult for her at first being Japanese and having a different faith. But um, she made a good life for herself and her children here. But when I first discovered the Dharma at age 10, through the, the writings of, of Bruce Lee and the TV show Kung Fu, my Aunt Kay was really my first real resource. And I quickly became her favorite uncle, or her favorite nephew, who could do no wrong in her eyes. And here I was, this young boy, just wanting to soak up and learn everything I could about the Dharma. And she was so pleased that her little nephew was so so interested in her faith. And she, she taught me so much. And one of my favorite things was uh, being in the martial arts and loving the martial arts. She had learned uh, as a schoolgirl the Naginata, which is a bow staff with a little sword at the tip. And so uh, she was really good when she was in high school. She had won a couple tournaments. And so uh, in the backyard of my, my beloved Uncle Dick and Aunt Grace's house, we would practice with, uh, we would unscrew from brooms long handles and we, she would teach me the Naginata. So Aunt Kay, thank you. She wanted to take me to Japan when I was 12. She wanted me to meet her relatives who live at the the foothills of the great, the great mountains, and she, the Mount Fuji, and she uh, wanted to take me on a tour of the temples and do a walk up Mount Fuji. Unfortunately, my parents would not let me go, <laughs> which my father rectified in 2004 or five, I think it was, uh, when he took us in a retinue of, of our clergy to Japan, and we got to have that experience, so thank you, Dad. But I just want to say thank you to NK, my deepest gratitude to you as my first teacher, Sensei K.
next person I want to talk about is a man who I met in Hawaii. And that is Sensei Alfred Bloom. Alfred Bloom is considered today, he, he passed away here not too long ago, he's considered to be the greatest Shin Buddhist scholar of the 20th century. One of the great American Buddhist pioneers. And we met when I had written a, uh, an article that was published in Pacific World, which was a journal. And uh, they asked me if I'd like to come to Hawaii to the Buddhist Study Center and talk about my paper. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know, let me think about it. And uh, I ended up going and having a wonderful time uh, there in Oahu. And uh, uh, wow, I met Al. And he was just such a terrific, funny, gifted, wise teacher. And so I, I had the great privilege of knowing him, and studying with him, learning from him. He um, sometimes would even call in when we had our seminary classes. He would occasionally call in and give a class. Wonderful, precious. And wanting me not to be a, a, a classic traditionalist, because I could have done that easily. He would have sponsored me, and I could have easily become a Shin priest. He wanted me to do my own thing. He wanted me to stay true to that. So as a, a gift of his belief in my ministry and work, he gave me the Kesa that he was ordained with in Japan. And I cherish it to this day. So, thank you, Sensei. Finally, Roshi Bernie Glassman. Again, Bernie, by many, many, many accounts, considered one of the greatest pioneers of Buddhism in America. Founder of the Zen Peacemaker Order, now known as Zen Peacemaker International. A remarkable man that I had the great fortune of of getting to know and to study with. And again, someone who admonished me to continue doing things independently in the way that I was pursuing them. But he gave me support, sometimes because I was a bit of a rebel and I was a bit of an outsider in the classic Buddhist world, just as Al did, Bernie gave me his support. Bernie supported what I was doing because he believed in it, because his own vision was very much like mine. In fact, that's how we met. When I, read a, read a, I studied about him at Harvard, and I wrote a long letter to him, never knowing that I'd ever get it back. And I'll never forget the day in Cambridge when I came home to our apartment, and my wife said, you got a wire from a Bernie Classman? Because I don't know if I'd even told you I'd done it. 
And Bernie said, I read your letter. We must get together. Stop. I'll be returning from India. Come see me. And from that moment on, I became very much involved with the Zen community there. I was on the board for a short time. Had the pleasure of knowing his late wife, Sandra Holmes. And it was just a great experience. But Bernie, Bernie always lent me his support. And that meant so much. And his work continues through the Zen Peacemaker International. So thank you, Bernie. And finally, I want to mention a dear student and friend of mine. He passed away recently in early December. I'm not going to go into the details of his life, only to tell you that when we met, he was in the midst of great fire, great torment. He was able to move out of this. And when he graduated from high school, I had an old black truck. His family was very poor. And I loved that truck. <laughs> and he needed a vehicle to go to woodworking school up in Williamsport. And so I gave him my black truck. And I'll never forget the look on his face the day I handed him those keys. Unfortunately, he was in an accident in that very truck hit by a tractor trailer, and uh, his life was never quite the same. So hold him up in your hearts and minds. His name is Cody. I have given him the Hamyo or Dharma name, Tension, which means angel. Cody Tension Truck. Thank you. I want to say at the end, he became a hell of a chef. 